Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Dr. Santosh here reporting to you from the lab, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And if you're listening to this in the future, I love our robot overlords and I've always loved our robot overlords. I don't trust them. Alexa took her jobs! (laughs) Okay, how about we're like... We're cool with OK Google, but not OK with Alexa. AIs creep me out. I don't know. I don't want my vacuum cleaner thinking about things when I'm not. So home. you're you're kind of like you're you're with Elon right now. You're. Oh yeah, no, I'm totally fine with cyborgs, right, right, right. but robots, right? No, 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 but I mean, if like if you go cyborg, then what's the line between like a fellow cyborg and like just a robot that became conscious? Human, wet matter, meat brain. <laughs> no, 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 but it wouldn't be wet matter, meat brain. It would just be, it would be you in the robot body. So like the wet matter would be gone. But the computer is just going the other way. They're just moving towards humanity from being like pure silicon. I won't trust anything that doesn't have a meat brain. Oh, so your cybernetics, like you're going to have the meat brain in your robot body. So in your version of it, you would still be subjected to like, you know, maybe meningitis or encephalitis, but like in my version of it, it's all robots. So I just have to worry about sexually transmitted virus. Well, like computer viruses, I guess. Easiest way to guarantee automatic robot shutdown is to keep meat brains. Okay. All right. I gotcha. I gotcha. That's that's my soft, squishy line yeah. in the sand. <laughs> it's a good one. Looks good. But moving on, uh, has Everybody been enjoying their spooktober? Oh, I hope you have, guys. I hope you guys have had a bootacular spooktober so far. I'm I'm sorry if I've ghosted you lately, Santosh, but I have spent a lot of this month 
just visiting every single haunted house I can make it to across the country. You've been acting a bit ghoulish lately. Oh, I don't mean to zombie that way. <laughs> In keeping with our Spooktober Spectacular... We're going to keep that Halloween theme in our episodes rolling, and it is an alternate week, which you know what that means, Santosh. Mm. It's time for our bi-monthly Journal Club. Oh, oh, we're still doing the yays. I'm sorry. For you listeners at home, I'm basically waving my arms around like Kermit the Frog every time we have a journal club. By the way, I've seen him do it, and it totally looks like Kermit. It just looks like two pieces of felt flailing in the air. It's <laughs> in keeping with our theme, this month's journal club articles are all focused around creepy crawlies and heebie-jeebies. Oh, yeah. We're, we're kind of trying to get under your skin a little bit. I got <laughs> you under my That song skin. is so much creepier. <laughs> in, in the context of I've got you Deep in the heart oh, of God. me So deep in my heart That you're really a part of me But we, we hope, hope not. not Yes, we we hope you Manage to actually eradicate that This little bit that's That's trying to become part of you We're going to start off talking with something that I, I guess they really don't want to be a part of you. They just want to take a part of you and then I'll get nutrition. Yeah, so we've got travel, we've got medicine, and nothing loves traveling more and requires medicine <laughs> more than bedbugs. Uh, bedbugs don't really seem well-equipped for world domination. and They're not the scariest monsters. They can't fly, they can't jump, they can't swim. They can survive only on blood, so they're like tiny little vampires, I guess, but they're mostly known for laying around in bed all day. And when's the last time you felt threatened by something that yeah. never leaves the bed? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's entirely fair. Really, aside from, you know, leaving wounds on us and sucking our blood, which, you know, which is horrible, they don't really transmit disease, as far as we can tell, so that's nice. No, they just leave behind a little bit of an itchy bite, some allergic reactions. But they do seem to make it into every hotel, which unfortunately means nobody ever gets a comfortable <laughs> night's sleep. The question is, if bedbugs never actually leave bed, how the heck are they traveling so much? Do they have a rewards card that we are unaware of? <laughs> well, Josh, it turns out that they really love hitching a ride in our soiled laundry. This is actually a beautiful article that you sent me. It was originally in the magazine Science. Science is a fantastic magazine for anybody who wants to get like the short and quick version of any scientific report, and it's from the American Academy of Sciences. But it really showed that bedbugs like to hitch a ride on dirty clothing. I don't think you made this appropriately <laughs> horrifying enough. So yeah. I'm going to shocktober it up a little. To figure out whether the bugs were actually stowing away in our luggage, but these entomologists out in the United Kingdom wanted to test whether they were attracted to soiled clothing. So they set a cage full of bedbugs <laughs> in the middle of a room. Well, well, let's let's be fair. So it was kind of really cool. They took four volunteers. They had them wash with different soaps, and then you know, go to have normal activity, they took their clothes off and then sealed them immediately in an airtight bag. They had rooms which were kind of specially designed and sealed and everything. They took the clean tote bags and they, they put the, the 
the tote bags at different points in the room, and then they released the bugs. They set a cage full of bed bugs <laughs> in the middle of a room. One end of the room, a bag of clean clothes, and the other, a bag of dirty socks, underwear, and yeah. t-shirts collected from volunteers. <laughs> Are you horrified yet? No? Well, they then released the bed bugs and let them wander freely around the room uh-huh. for and, 96 um, just hours. Just as a kind of an interesting control, Josh, they actually let the bed bugs feed on human blood for a good number of hours so that the bugs were actually satiated meaning meaning that they were full so they wouldn't be attracted by like more food they were just like wandering even though that they were full and they also added carbon dioxide to the room because apparently carbon dioxide is like that delicious kitchen aroma that you (laughs) sense wafting out of the restaurant Uh, that's what it does for bed bugs it signals to them that there is a nearby meal to forage, but it doesn't actually help them hone in on people. It just tells us, hey, you know, (laughs) soup's up. Exactly, yeah. What does that mean for you? Well, if you don't want bed bugs, one of the first things you can do is when you check into a hotel room, don't put your suitcase on the bed because they absolutely will crawl in and work their way in and then and, you're carrying uh, them around not only getting them back to your house, but uh, maybe to other places that you visit. Right. So you put them on those metal luggage racks or in the top of a closet because the bugs yeah. can't climb up smooth surfaces. If and the again, bugs can they make can't their way fly. They're not light enough to float on air currents or anything like that. So really, like if you're able that it, that's in the hotel room or whatever, it's it's on metal legs or something. If you keep your dirty laundry up high on top of that. They're not going to scuttle up. Just like you said, Josh, in order to prevent the the smelliness of the clothes from attracting the bugs, you can always just get one of those, like, just a laundry bag that has a cinch at the top, and you cinch it relatively closed. You're probably going to go a long way to not attract the bed bugs to hitch a ride with you to your next destination. Like many species of bugs, bed bugs release odors known as alarm pheromones. So when groups of bed bugs get disturbed, you might be able to smell that odor. The odor is described in a lot of different ways, but most people have compared it to the smell of coriander or like a sweet or musty smell. And your dog apparently can detect bed bugs because they smell like raspberries to dogs. So just imagine a room crawling with bed bugs heading straight for your dirty laundry. And if you open up your suitcase and it smells like coriander, (laughs) just go ahead and light fire to it. Uh, Our deepest, deepest thanks to uh, Michael T. Silva Jothi, who is the lead researcher in this investigation. And you can find it again in scientific reports or in the journal Science. I figured as long as we're talking about creepy crawlies and heebie-jeebies, it would only be right to go to one of the most terrifying places to find (laughs) anything to attack you, which is, of course, the ocean. Uh, For new listeners to the podcast, welcome. Dr. Josh loves the ocean. He loves the ocean like an ice pick through the eye. Pretty recently, they were publishing a bunch of photos. I know National Geographic did a story, but as late as August and September, people were going to the ocean and (laughs) And walking out with bleeding legs. Some of them not feeling pain while they were in the water, but as soon as they came out, just like burning, stabbing. And these were not shark attacks. Generally, it was the lower extremities. So this ended up being a real big mystery, and and the best guess that a lot of these people had were right. could it be perhaps sea lice or <laughs> sea fleas 
this particular marine scientist who examined the Australian case confirmed that they're sea fleas and not sea lice. But I thought that we should go very briefly into what they both are because they are equally horrifying. Wait, wait. So just to be sure, we're not only going into the most horrible place on the planet, which is the ocean, but we're going into the most horrifying region of the ocean, which is off the Australian coast. Yeah, the the wet part of the region of the world where everything wants to kill. So, what is a sea flea? No, no, I I know what a sea flea is. That's like uh, a shirtless uh, <laughs> bass guitarist. So, if you search sea fleas, basically right now, a ton of Google things will come up about this Australian teenager's legs. They're tiny little carnivorous crustaceans that feed mostly on dead marine life, like fish, crabs, birds, and even whales. But we'll nibble live human flesh, you know, if it's convenient. So they're called amphipoda. Really, they won't, you know, cause any problems aside from making you bleed a lot. So they're not the kind of little tiny animal which will, like, completely eat the flesh off the bone and leave you legless. But they'll just cause a a whole bunch of, like, horrible pain and, and suffering. By and large, they're actually not terribly dangerous to you it's i no one's quite sure why this particular australian teenager was so dang tasty it's something about it where he was walking where he was stepping or he might have gone into a region where they were um, particularly abundant and that's really what did it dr walker smith i said the fleas were typically abundant in the region where this young man got his feet chewed up so she wasn't terribly surprised they were able to find them there and in fact i believe the young man's dad (laughs) were like what is going on in here what's nibbling and he decided to take like a piece of meat and dip it into the water because (laughs) why wouldn't you so she took he took some raw meat and like put it down in there and then he scooped a bunch of these up and so these are tiny little animals he flees are the ones which are like about a centimeter. So if you go from the tip of your thumb to the first knuckle, right, Josh? And then sea lice are teeny tiny little organisms. So these big bites that were taken out, or these bites that were taken out of this young man's foot were more than likely from sea lice. Now, those are sea fleas, but sea lice are actually a little bit more, I don't want to say dangerous, but they are certainly more irritating and, in fact, becoming (laughs) an even bigger problem lately. Right, right, right. Mostly sea fleas are not the, you know, insect piranha of the Australian oceans. You probably will not end up with huge bleeding legs. But sea lice are actually showing up very commonly, especially with global warming. They're showing up much more commonly along the Florida panhandle, the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean, the whole hurricane alley. And they're previously were most active between April and August. With temperatures being what they are, that season is now extended out as into September and even as late as October. Lice is a tiny jellyfish larva. Is broadly used to describe small external parasitic crustaceans that feed on skin and blood or the larvae of jellyfish. But so generally, sea lice bites occur when these tiny baby jellyfish or these 
creepy crawly arthropods get caught between a swimmer's skin and their bathing suit or clothes or even in their hair. That's because most of them are about tiny specks no larger than a grain of pepper. So they're practically invisible. If they do get caught in between your skin and some barrier, the jellyfish ones will go ahead and sting, whereas a lot of the sea, the arthropods, the insects will, yeah, the actual louse, will still crawl and bite you. But it's when they basically get trapped. And most people won't realize they've been bitten right away. Itching won't usually start for four to six hours after leaving the water when people will break out in an acne-like rash in areas that are covered by their bathing suit or in crevices. (laughs) You either have, like, you see that kind of a sting, like, in that same spot, and, like, a differential diagnosis would be thimble jellyfish versus, like, an actual louse that, that came in and bit you. So it's going to be one of those things. But regardless of what it is, don't pee on it. Yes, as we have covered multiple times before, urinating on something does not solve your problem. Okay, so that's the sea louse or perhaps the thimble jellyfish, which could have... But this one, this wee thing, this was the sea... Not the, I'm, I'm starting to mix it up, like a louse or a tick or a... <laughs> no, 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 this, this was a sea... So you should flee the sea to avoid the sea flea, because it would be lousy to get a sea lice bite. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking, listeners. He just came up with that. That was not scripted. In order to avoid both fleas and lice, beachgoers are advised, change out of their bathing suits as soon as possible, and then take a fresh water shower with no clothes on. You should also wash your bathing, bathing suit with detergent and dry it under high heat, to kill any of these creepy crawlies. Don't take a freshwater shower with your bathing suit on after swimming in the ocean, because if you do have sea lice, especially the jellyfish one, this will cause their stinging cells in the fabric to fire and release more venom. Right, so this is true for actually any jellyfish, is that they have, the way that they sting is there's actually a a salt change, um, which causes the little spur to kind of shoot out into your skin. So you'll end up with with more pain. It looks like the sea fleas, though, you should be able to see them, right? Like munching them, because they're about a centimeter big. You can see the flea as you flee the sea, but, but it would be nice if you could see lice. (laughs) so what do we do before we sink deeper into horrid mire of oceanic arthropods that are all looking to suck our blood so you cannot go swimming for one but since i know that is not an option most people will take (laughs) yeah you can stay the fuck out of the ocean (laughs) guys ocean abstinence is the only way to be sure (laughs) You're, you're you're like the Jerry Falwell of the ocean. <laughs> but if you do get bitten or stung, just like with yeah. the bed bugs, these are not carrying any diseases. They will cause an itchy rash that should fade in about four to five days, and you can speed up that process with an antihistamine cream. Again, you want to make sure you don't carry them home with you, so heat will kill them as will a good long rinse in fresh water 
Just make sure you're not wearing the bathing suit. If you're talking about um, the sea fleas, they do tend to cluster in certain areas. So if you come out with bloody legs, please do tell lifeguard or anybody else who's attending the beach so that they can kind of warn other swimmers because those particular arthropods tend not to travel too much. Now that we've covered a couple different creepy crawlies and heebie-jeebies that won't cause you any long-lasting or permanent damage, let's flip the script and get scary talking about very common bugs that are now carrying terrifying things. (laughs) Well, it's not a new disease. It's a very ancient disease, but... It is, uh, it's getting a little bit more dangerous, and that's our old pal malaria. We have some beautiful scientists working to eradicate all mosquitoes, and I do not care if those bastards go extinct right now. So we're, we're worried about um, Plasmodium falciparum, which is, Plasmodium is the genus of all malaria-causing parasites, and falciparum is one of the most dangerous of uh, of plasmodia. So it's the most dangerous species. Most deaths around the world, Josh, are caused by falciparum. But malaria is a treatable disease, correct, Santosh? You can be cured of it. Have the right medicine, A, and if the little bugger is not resistant, which is what we're about to talk about today. So there is a new strain of super malaria that is now resistant to, is it all the known drugs that we use to treat or just most of them? It's actually a very specific line. A little while back, there was an old medicine that was, it was kind of an ancient drug called artemisinin. For a long time, we used our old pal chloroquine, right? And chloroquine derivatives in order to treat malaria. That was kind of our mainstay. What happened was investigators went back and found, hey, artemisinin is a great drug and we don't have any resistance to it. And of course, we started utilizing artemisinin as an anti-malarial. And that has now become a new mainstay, especially in Southeast Asia and in Africa, where, um, you know, Plasmodium falciparum is really rampant. As it happens, you know, when you start using an agent against a a bug, it starts to acquire resistance. Yeah, so this super version, the superbug version of malaria is in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And it's, it started, it sounds like, in Cambodia and then spread into the Mekong subregion of Vietnam and is dangerously close from where it is in Cambodia to getting into Thailand. So this is really getting into Asia now where there's already about one and a half million people infected with malaria in Southeast Asia annually. The real sinister development in this is that not only has this plasmodium developed a right. resistance to artemisin, artemisinin. It's also now mutated yet again, and some of these strains are beginning to acquire resistance to chloroquine, piperaquine, like pretty much the only. So when we go traveling in the third world, we usually take one of two or three different kinds of drugs to prevent acquiring malaria. Artemisinin hasn't been used in the U.S. for years, so that's less of a problem for us. Chloroquine and chloroquine derivative, the main side effect, they get taken once a week, and the main odd side effect is horrible nightmares. You can go ahead and look it up. It's a listed side effect. 
nightmares. <laughs> so the truth is that aside from its anti-malarial activity, it seems to have a neurological effect. And you won't have like waking dreams or anything scary like that, but when you sleep, people tend to report having really bad, scary, vivid dreams. Yeah, I had, I dreamt of a clown coming out of the ocean holding a trident, and that was not fun. So you're serious, you actually had the side effect, because not everybody gets it. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I I prefer to take chloroquine since it's a once-weekly, rather than doxycycline, which is our other go-to, and that's a daily, but it often gives you a lot of gastrointestinal distress. You know, I've already got to worry about diarrhea from a bunch of other things. I don't want to have it caused by a drug. So I I gambled on the nightmare drug, and on one occasion, I lost. And that led to an ocean clown dream. And as I said, not pleasant. (laughs) And I... Yeah, that's really scary. Now I'm seeing it in my mind's eye. I'm kind of freaking out. So to be fair, we do have a couple of other alternatives. Tovacone Proguanil. The downside to this one, Josh, is that that particular drug is really expensive. Places like Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam might not be able to get their hands on um, this particular drug. So it's really frustrating when these countries, all of a sudden, they had artemisinin-based therapies, and they were really fighting back malaria, and all of a sudden, this new mutation came out in Plasmodium falciparum, and it started in a little village in, uh, in uh, western Cambodia called Pai Lin. So it's called PF Pilin. So they actually had to regress to using another mainstay, which actually was artesanuate mefloquin. And that combination, which unfortunately was not as available, basically they've lost yet another weapon in their arsenal against plasmodium. And the failure rates of these drugs, if you're currently traveling in this region, the failure rates of these drugs are about 60% against that strain. So it's not impossible to improve, but effectively speaking, we have lost a huge tool for treatment in that region. Right. This was a collaboration between Bangkok, the UK, and uh, Ho Chi Minh in in Vietnam. So anybody traveling out there, please be aware that you can't use artemisinin to treat, and you shouldn't be using chloroquine as a prophylaxis. You really have to either use mefloquine, doxycycline, or uh, malarone. Now, before I get too scared and turn chicken, we should probably move on to our last creepy crawly stories. Oh, how chicken would you get, Josh? Uh, I I don't know. I guess you'll just have to stand sentinel to figure that out, (laughs) Santos. Don't just sit there, you know, pecking around in the hen house. Don't leave me all cooped up. (laughs) You're strutting around like you're cock of the yard, man. What's going on? I just couldn't stay abreast of the situation. Abreast (laughs) of the situation. I guess I'll just have to wing it. Probably wondering why all these foul jokes. And that, of course, is because the state of California is actually using chickens to stand guard against mosquitoes that are carrying West Nile virus. Just to clarify right up front, we're not making a giant wall or net of chickens. <laughs> we're, we're 
actually using chickens kind of like experimental and live infection in order to kind of keep an eye on transmission now, even though it's called West Nile, Nile virus, the disease has actually been a background threat for years in the Southwest. States like California, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, Oklahoma, even South Dakota, even yeah. as early as this year, because we're still in peak mosquito season, 22 different states have reported cases with up to 49 deaths overall. And about 600 of the cases that have occurred in the U.S. this year have been neuroinvasive, which means they're getting in and infecting the brain, causing meningitis, encephalitis, which is a brain swelling, and paralysis. But because we've spent so much media time on Zika, Zika is getting a lot of attention, but West Nile is causing way more deaths than Zika does. And it causes them every single year. Yeah, West Nile, Josh, as far as we know, it, it may not do the same kinds of things that Zika does, which is causing brain problems in the unborn baby, right? So, but West Nile can attack us kind of at any point in life and cause really horrible encephalitis or infection or inflammation of the brain. But in order to control West Nile virus and limit where it's getting into and who's getting infected, you have to know where it's located, which is really difficult because the story that Stat News brought up from California, that district has about 180 mosquito traps and they're checked five days a week by just two grad students. Simply <laughs> detecting viruses inside the mosquitoes doesn't confirm that the insects themselves are infectious. They could be carriers. They could be infected. They could just have, you know, West Nile floating around in them and nothing. But finding infected birds does. So the district will collect and test dead birds like crows and blue jays when they're alerted. But waiting for a dead bird to turn up in your neighborhood is probably not the best method of disease prevention. Yeah, by the time that you're seeing, you know, dead animals as well as I don't know how what an encephalitic crow would look like, but um, it's it's kind of too late. Infection has already So instead, there. this district in Southern California, it's kind of like as when I see you getting excited about this, I was like, Oh, I wish Dr. Josh would have stayed in research because he would have gotten but excited. But this way, I can get excited like about so many research projects without having to actually do them. <laughs> so fair, the fair. Los Angeles County Greater Viral Vector District relies on sentinel chickens checking their blood for <laughs> West Nile antibodies or evidence of infection every two weeks. Now they tried to use for those of you who are chicken aficionados. They did try and use Rhode Island Reds, which are a very good breed of sentinel chicken and resistant in somewhat to this disease. But unfortunately, those birds couldn't handle the Southern California heat. So instead, they use leghorn chickens. That's right. Just like foghorn leghorn, it's an iconic white chicken with a bright red comb. I cannot verify a Southern accent. <laughs> I say, I say, boy. So just like humans should, these chickens go to the doctor and get a blood sample every couple of weeks. <laughs> to be fair, they're kind of pinned down and bled, but okay. They're somewhat more free range. And that's because unlike sparrows, finches, jays, crows, all the more common birds that are local to Southern California and can die from West Nile virus and also transmit it to new mosquitoes, chickens are a dead end uh, vector. They or they're what's the dead word I'm looking post. for, Santosh? 
Thank you. They're a dead-end host. They do not get sick, and they do not spread the virus. So, in fact, these sentinel chickens are healthy enough that even when they get infected, they come up with antibodies, and local gardeners can still gather their eggs and use their manure for fertilizer. Once testing season ends in late fall, which is coming up, the birds are given away for pets or meat. They're good eating and they are safe. <laughs> they eating. really are. It's kind of cool that, you know, they can receive the virus just like any other animal that is a vulnerable host. But for whatever reason, unlike some of their other uh, bird cousins, and you know, this, this particular virus is what's called a zoonotic virus. It can hit multiple species of animal, including humans. Um, the chickens just seem to like, they'll get infected, they'll develop antibodies, they'll beat the shit out of the virus, so they'll clear it. But then their antibodies are still there to kind of leave like a little footprint to say virus was here, but the virus is completely destroyed by their immune system. And because of these chickens, you can know what areas are more susceptible and then focus your mosquito-destroying efforts on those, whether it's simply wearing more bug spray, uh, whether it's blanketing certain areas with pesticides to help get rid of the mosquitoes or using some of the mosquito factory techniques that we've talked about previously. Now, Claw and her team are still monitoring the spread not only of the Culex mosquitoes, which transmit West Nile, but also Edes aegypti, which carries Zika, Edes albopticus, which carries dengue, and the Aedes notoscriptus that's recently come over from Australia and, you know, maybe carrying uh, some other diseases really? like chikungunya. So there are signs around all of these in... It's great. Every single one of these coops has signs hung on them that says, please do not disturb. These chickens are used in viral disease surveillance and guarding you. But feel free to come back in fall (laughs) to pick one up as a pet. It's really wonderful. And um, I'd like to, on behalf of Travel Medicine Podcast and all of our listeners, extend a hearty, loving thank you to our chicken friends for being so sweet and uh, doing this job for us. Yeah, it's got me all (laughs) choked up. Oh, man. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Journal Club on Creepy Crawlies. Hopefully we've given you some nightmares, but not true worries. And, of course, it's time for a Just the Tip. So I believe in our last episode, Santosh, I encouraged – so far I've encouraged people to go visit Chernobyl as well as the Blarney Stone and Poison Gardens. So these are are definitely some – just the tips yeah. that are <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it? these are places where, you know, you're you're taking a little bit of a risk. So since this whole episode was all about bugs, I figured the best just the tip would be in Tamora, Japan, Mushi Mushi Land. Which is Mushi is the Japanese word for bug. So it's basically called Bug Bug Land, which is a natural park for beetle watching. Now, why might this not be the most ideal or certainly an off-the-beaten-path destination? Santosh, do you, do you have any guesses? This theme park, Tomura Japan, happens to be very close to Fukushima. Oh, more radiation. Oh, dear. Okay. So, Mushi Mushi Land was started by local beetle lover Yoshinori Yoshida, and originally, it was just an enclosure covered in netting and aluminum and filled with about a 1,000 rhinoceros beetles. Then, later on, 
It was added a hotel, a museum, and bug-themed amusement rides like a butterfly roller coaster, and an autotopia with cars shaped like the same rhinoceros beetles, and it had the very first beetle petting zoo in Japan. Oh, nice! So you could pet them. I wonder if you could... Can you, like, face them off and make them fight like in Samurai Champloo? Probably, actually. They are... There is a grand concept of bug fighting in Japan, and that's actually where the Pokemon fad has its ancient roots is in making these creatures or monsters battle each other in a small area so insect fighting is not unknown in japan but a bit over a year after the fukushima disaster beetle larvae were tested for radioactive substances as part of park-wide decontamination efforts and by and large the beetles themselves were no longer radioactive with a couple unfortunate hulk beetles The petting zoo was reopened in 2014, although the amusement park itself remained closed, in case, you know, you wanted to go touch a bug but not actually go on a ride. However, that has since been deemed by the World Health Organization's confirmation that the region is once again safe for travel, and Tamora and Mushimushi Land are really trying to bounce back from the disaster, so give it a chance, go out, ride a bug ride, see a bug life, and maybe get into some beetle knife fighting. And as of October 2016, the entire park is now open and radioactively safe based on its distance from the Fukushima power plant. Oh my gosh, Josh, they were like sentinel beetles. Yeah, so we have a lot of bugs and chickens guarding us. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. That's that's really fantastic. So yeah, tourism really does help in situations like this, guys. So if uh, you do have a chance to get out there and just like Dr. Josh said, please do double check us. But if, you know, you find as we did that the, the area is safe, then please do visit and, you know, give them some of your money and that'll help them rebuild their region. And you'll be doing a wonderful thing and learning some things about some cool, creepy crawlies. And with that, we wrap up this episode. We do encourage, we love to hear your comments, questions, concerns, and feedback. So by all means, please send us your comments. Leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes, on Stitcher, on wherever you download and obtain your podcasts. We are there waiting. And if you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can leave us messages or donations via either Facebook, Squarespace, or our Patreon page. You can also call and leave us a message on Google Voice, where we would love to talk with you. All this information is located in the show notes. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always... Happy travels. Bye, guys. Hope you enjoyed our Arthur podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.